This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. We'll be looking this morning at verses 24 through 27. This morning we're looking at uh, Matthew 17 as we continue our series of studies in Matthew's Gospel. Verse 24, hear the word of God. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the half-shekel tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for their power, their truth. Thank you, Father, for the life-giving message, eternal life-giving message that they contain as they point us to Christ and all that he is for us. And Father, we pray as we study this word that you will open our eyes. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scottish scholar Alexander Balmain Bruce, in his classic work, The Training of the Twelve, says of this passage that we've just read, this story is a nut with a dry, hard shell, but a very sweet kernel. Of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew alone includes this incident, perhaps because as a former taxman for Rome, he found it somewhat insightful and probably not a little bit amusing. And as we look at these verses, we see demonstrated here the humility of Jesus. You know, as we studied Matthew so far, we've certainly had opportunity to see both the divine glory and majesty and power of Jesus and the perfect humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ and his humiliation, his state of humiliation in becoming a man and living in this world. And we make a mistake when we allow our thinking about Jesus, our teaching about Jesus, to move exclusively toward one or the other of those truths. Many of the heresies the church has struggled with through her history have come about because that balance, even that tension between Jesus' deity and Jesus' humanity or is thrown out of whack. The tendency is to slide to one or the other, while the Bible teaches both, and we hold to both. 
Well, in this passage, we see both of them again. We see both the glorious deity of our Lord Jesus, but we also see his humility. And I think it's a, a beautiful thing when you see even an even a ordinary human being who is in a high place, perhaps positionally, maybe a, a CEO of a large corporation, or, or, or in terms of gifts or ability, a professional athlete, and yet combined with that high position or that high ability and that high level of accomplishment, there's a corresponding humility, a certain air of lowliness, recognizing the ability and yet recognizing it's a gift given and it's not from oneself. There's something beautiful about that. Well, no more do we see that better portrayed than in our Lord Jesus, who was higher than any human being has ever been, the the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, and yet humbled himself and demonstrated humility to a a degree no other human being ever has. And we see that combined here in this passage. And as we've seen all along, we see here, Jesus consistently demonstrates humility in his own life. And he calls on us who follow him, us who are called by his name, to demonstrate that same humility, that same lowliness ourselves. Well, how does it do that? Let's look at three manifestations of the humility of our Lord Jesus here in this passage. First of all, we see his humility in his willingness to pay the temple tax despite his exemption as a son. Look at verse uh, 24. They came to Capernaum, and you'll recall this was when Jesus had his Galilean ministry going. This was kind of the home base, his hometown, adopted hometown after Nazareth. The collectors of a half-shekel tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? Now, we need to be careful. These collectors were not Roman. Uh, Matthew records this, but this was a little different category than what he himself was involved in. Uh, Matthew was a collector for Rome, political tax. This was a tax regarding the support and maintenance of the temple. And in the Old Testament reading Mike read earlier from Exodus, uh, we find where that provision was given, that any male 20 years old and up was to contribute this half-shekel tax per year to go to the support and maintenance and operation of the temple system. And so there in Capernaum, the collectors of this tax, this half-shekel, come up to... Uh, Peter, uh, it's also, uh, in fact, the ESV, the, the newer revised version of it, in 2006, it kind of changed a few things. I think it says the two drachma tax. It's the same thing, same tax. Uh, they come up to, G- to Peter, not to Jesus, but to Peter, and they say, does your teacher not pay the tax? In fact, the way it's worded grammatically, it, it seems to look for or to imply it expects a positive answer. Uh, one translation, I think, really captures it when it puts it this way. Your teacher does pay the temple tax, doesn't he? Which the, the normal response, the looked-for response would be, well, yes, of course, he does. Uh, he does pay the tax, doesn't he? And, and so Peter said, yes. Now, that's based on knowing Jesus, knowing that Jesus has paid this in the past. Uh, and, of course, he does. We don't know why they asked. Maybe this was just a question about Jesus. Maybe he was late in paying it. We don't know. 
Uh, but they come to Peter and they ask about that. Now, we read when, when Peter came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. Now, there's some question here. Uh, was Peter accompanied by Jesus all along? Did Jesus hear this question? Uh, was Jesus with Peter, and yet these collectors come to Peter out of deference to Jesus as a, as a public and popular teacher going to his disciple Peter instead? so as not to approach Jesus with this mundane question. Or, as I think more likely, was Peter alone, and he comes to the house, and Jesus is there at the house, and Jesus demonstrates a supernatural knowledge of this conversation that had taken place. It does seem to make a point that Jesus spoke to Peter first, as if that would be unusual, that that. Jesus should be the one to bring it up, rather than Peter, who you know, naturally would think Peter would come in the house with Jesus. They asked about the temple tax. What do you think? Are you going to pay it? Have you paid it? Uh, but Matthew specifically notes Jesus spoke to him first about this, which seems to imply that that was, that was unusual. That was not expected. Some have suggested it took place near the house, and Jesus overheard the conversation. But I do think... Uh, I think the most natural reading is that Jesus was aware supernaturally of this conversation. And so he, he brings up the subject with Peter. What do you think, Simon? Calls him Simon. In spite of the fact that Jesus was the one who gave him the name Peter, remember Matthew 16, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Uh, Jesus usually called him, still called him Simon. He called him Peter one other time in Matthew's gospel. And that's when he said, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows three times, you will betray me. And you will deny me, rather. Uh, which seems somewhat ironic that he would call him the rock, specifically when he says Peter's going to cave, he's going to crumble. You will deny me three times. Uh, but usually, even after he gave him the name Peter, he still referred to him as Simon, his given name. What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take their toll or tax? From their sons or from others? In other words, do uh, the rulers tax their own family? Do they tax their own children? Or do they tax others? Well, Peter's absolutely right. Peter said, well, from others. Kings, rulers, don't tax their own family. Don't exact tolls from their children, but from the citizens. From the land. After all, the children themselves are those who are supported by the taxes, taxes levied by the citizenry, by the populace. And so Peter says, well, from others. And so Jesus said to him, then the sons are free from paying the tax. Now, here's where there's that nut that Bruce spoke of with that hard shell. What is Jesus talking about here? Why does, he, why does he put it that way? What is he saying when he says the sons are free? Well, he uses this illustration to teach something. It just says the sons of the palace are free from taxation from their father, the king. So Jesus is free from taxation to support his father's house, the temple. And you'll recall how, particularly when he drove out the money changers, Jesus said, How dare you turn my father's house 
into this bizarre bazaar. Okay, that's a loose paraphrase, but that's what Jesus was saying. How, how dare you desecrate my father's temple with all this trade going on, all this commotion in what was supposed to be the court of prayer for the Gentiles. But it was his father's house. You see, Jesus, by definition, who he is, should be exempt from paying to support the temple when it's his father who owns the temple, who rules the temple, for whom the temple exists. Jesus is a son. So he bases his exemption on his identity. He's a son of his father, and the temple is his father's. We just saw that with the transfiguration, right? This is my son. Jesus was exempt because of his relationship to the Father. He also was exempt because he himself is the fulfillment of the temple. Mike read the New Testament passage earlier, and Jesus says to them, something greater than the temple is here. Now, sometimes that could be rendered someone, but he's referring to something, including himself, but the coming of the kingdom that's embodied in himself. All of that is greater than the temple. It's, it's, the, it's that to which the temple pointed. It is the, he is the fulfillment, and the coming kingdom is the fulfillment of the temple. And so because of who Jesus is as a son of his father, because of who he is as the one greater than the temple... In fact, the God the temple represents, Jesus is therefore free. But notice he doesn't just say the son is free. The sons are free. This is not just teaching something about Jesus. This is teaching something about the church. Because you see, Jesus had in mind not just himself, but his disciples, the the apostles, but all his disciples, including us, everyone who follows him, everyone who has believed in him, everyone who is a part of the age to come. The temple represented that old age that was passing away, the old covenant that was being superseded and fulfilled by the new covenant. And he says not just the Son, capital S, is free, but the sons are free. Nevertheless, Jesus says, Not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, take the first fish that comes, you'll get the coin, and go pay the tax. You see, this was an act of voluntary humility on Jesus' part, that he had paid the tax and would continue to pay the temple tax. Formally, he was exempt, and yet he was willing to do it. You see, Jesus was not like some who would say, don't they know who I am? How could they think of asking me to pay this tax? Don't they know who I am? I remember a, a professional athlete who shall not be named, who one time was trying to get onto the field at uh, at the Georgia Dome at an improper time, he was trying to go, and he was stopped. And uh, when that happened, he said, don't they know who I am? Trying to claim rank, trying to pull... Uh, pull this privilege. As, yes, he was a professional athlete, but it was closed at that time. He was not supposed to be there. Well, Jesus never did that sort of thing. Jesus willingly paid the tax because it was part of his humiliation, which began with his being born into this world, living under the law, suffering abuse from people, very people he came to save, uh, and eventually his suffering, his death, his crucifixion, and his burial. You see, his submission to the law even though technically he was exempt, 
was an expression of his humility. He didn't say, don't they know who I am? He was willing to pay the tax. Well, you and I no longer support a temple as such. That law is no longer in place. We do have the law of the tithe, and that goes toward the expansion of the kingdom in our day. But Jesus points out that it's not just Jesus, but there's those who are in him, who are the sons of the kingdom, and those who are no longer bound by the old strictures of the old covenant. It's all part of why we don't bring sacrifices, why we don't do all of the things required under the old covenant. But Jesus' willingness to pay the temple tax, despite his exemption as as a son, is an expression of his humility. Second, his desire not to give offense, despite his objections to the temple, to the temple system, the structure as it was in his day. Jesus had strong reservations, strong criticisms about the religious organization structure as it was in his day. We've seen that criticism, and we'll see it very strongly, perhaps most strongly in Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus pronounces woes on the scribes and Pharisees for their superficial religion, for their hypocrisy. And and, and a lot of that was typical of the temple, the whole priestly system. There were a lot of problems there. And yet Jesus still supported it. He paid the tax. He could have said, well, you know, I I so strongly object to what's going on here. I'm not going to pay to help support that. I've got difficulties with it. I don't like the money-changing system. I don't like the hypocrisy, the self-righteousness. I don't like the fact that people place their confidence in the temple instead of the God whose temple it is. But what did Jesus do? He still paid the tax. Now, there were some dynamics here. It would have been inflammatory not to pay the tax. Suppose Jesus said, no, not going to pay the tax. Well, that would give offense. And the word here is, again, to stumble, to be a scandal. And it probably would imply a repudiation of the temple that Jesus never came to give. Remember, Jesus didn't say, I've come to abolish all of the old Uh, I've come to fulfill it. I've come to complete it. I've come to bring it to closure, to open up the greater glories of the new covenant. But Jesus never said, no, I repudiate all that. I I denounce all that. I turn my back on it. He came to fulfill it, not to abolish it. And so despite his objections, Jesus paid the temple tax. And I think that certainly has lessons for us. I would certainly hope that this church or the PCA or other organizations we may be involved with would not reach so so corrupt a level as, as much of the priestly and temple system did in Jesus' day, a spiritually barren and arid condition as it did in his day. Uh, yet Jesus still supported it because it was God-ordained. It was the structure that was in place. Uh, the lesson here is that we'll never have a perfect structure, perfect organization, whether it's this church, whether it's the PCA, whatever it might be, uh, because every organization, no matter how well constructed, is still made up of sinful, fallen, even if redeemed, human beings. Um, I, I have no doubt that you think about the church, maybe think of things that we should be doing or could be doing better, or the PCA, uh, and yet, as Jesus supported what God had ordained and set up in his day, 
then we're not remiss to support something that, while not perfect, nevertheless is essentially the, the, the structure God has placed and is using in the world. Jesus recognized the imperfections of the temple and the whole system, the religious system there in Jerusalem, and yet he did not refuse to make the contribution that the law called for. So it was inflammatory if he refused. It was uh, technically inappropriate to pay the tax since he was a son. And yet in his humility, he was willing to pay the tax, one, as a good witness, and two, to indicate in a practical way that he had not come to abolish it, to renounce it, but he'd come to fulfill it, to bring it to completion. Third evidence of Jesus' humility here, and that is his his willingness to submit to being provided for by one of his own creatures. And we're not talking about a person here. We see this in verse 27. Not to give offense, Jesus said, go to the sea, Peter, cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. Now, that was somewhat unusual because most, well, pretty much every other reference to fishing in the New Testament involved a net. And a a professional fisherman fishing for his livelihood would use a net. But it was not uncommon for people to use a, a line and a hook like we would today. Not necessarily a nice uh, spinning reel, but uh, nevertheless, use a hand line perhaps with some sort of hook on the end and bait and catch fish. It was done that long ago. And Peter does that, and Jesus says, take the first fish that comes up. Tells him to go do it. Take the first fish. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel, which was twice the amount required for the temple tax. Uh, a stater, four drachmas, uh, a whole shekel. The tax was a half shekel. Now, the speculation about the fish, we don't know what the fish was. Probably some sort of, uh, their, their carp, uh, that were somewhat, uh, predatory in nature, uh, maybe some sort of catfish. See sparkling coin on the bottom and go for it and get stuck in his mouth. However, and it doesn't even say Peter went and did it. We assume he did because Jesus told him to do it, and that's how the tax was provided. Now, when I read that, the, the closest analogy I think of, uh, of when I read that is the ravens feeding Elijah in the wilderness, you know, when they came to him and brought him food. Well, they weren't bringing, the, the animal wasn't bringing food here, but a coin to pay the temple tax. And you see Jesus' humility and, and, and his wisdom, too, because Jesus didn't pay the tax out of the small funds that they had that those who were supporting their work provided. Uh, they were living on the support. They were being supported to carry out the ministry that God had ordained him to do. And they were able to pay the tax not from that fund. Jesus technically did not pay the tax. And so he recognized his position as a son. He technically himself didn't pay the tax. And yet the tax was paid on his behalf so as not to give offense, and it was supplied in this unusual and supernatural way. And so led Jerome, the old Latin Vulgate Bible. Jerome was a Bible scholar, commentator a long time ago. Uh, he, he, he said about Jesus' action here, I know not which to admire most, our Lord's foreknowledge or his greatness. Uh, it wasn't just knowing what would happen. He had decreed that that fish would have swallowed that coin. That coin would be available. That would be the fish that Peter caught, and that coin would be provided to pay the tax. An unusual way to do it. And yet Jesus submits to a mere fish providing the coin 
to pay his temple tax for that year. And so as we look at this passage, we see very closely interwoven both the greatness of his deity and the amazing humility that he showed. Uh, It's demonstrated in the context of his humility. And what an example for us. Now, no, we couldn't decree that, you know, our next uh, next tax bill is going to be provided for uh, by a largemouth bass we catch at Lake Lanier. That would be really cool. But that's not what it's teaching. What it is teaching is that just as our Savior demonstrated both his deity and his humility, we who are his children should recognize, one, our high standing as children of God, that the Lord God is our Father. And yet combine that not with an arrogance, not with a condescension toward those who are outside the family of God, but combine it with a humility and with a desire not to give offense. Jesus was concerned that they not be offended at him for the wrong reasons. They were offended for the right reasons at his true claims, but not for the wrong reasons. And so as our Savior demonstrated this humility, so it's appropriate that we who are his Interact with the world in a gracious way, in a loving way, with a desire not to give undue offense toward those who are around us. And unfortunately, the church has all too often taken the opposite tact. Too often we've been like the Pharisees and scribes, you know, looking at people outside the church as sinners and looking the other way or looking down our nose at them. Jesus never had that attitude, even though he was God incarnate. Even though his sin was far, uh, sins around him were far more repulsive to him than they ever would be to you or to me. And yet there was a gentleness, there was a humility, there was a regard for the thoughts and feelings of others that typified his ministry. And you know what? The sinful people flocked to him. What a difference it would make in our witness as a church. And for the church and its witness, if we combine both the beauty of deity, we're not God, but we are children of God. We are made and remade now in the image of God in Christ. Combine that beauty with the beauty of a true gentleness, lowliness, humility, as that demonstrated by our Lord Jesus. What a witness that would be. And that's what Jesus calls us to be. And he demonstrates it first. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for its truth. We pray that you would impress upon us, Lord, both the beauty of the deity and the beauty of the humility of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we might reflect that in our own lives. We pray it in his name. Amen.